Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it seems appropriate that at this time we should be still. It's often in the stillness that we forget that you are God. It's in the stillness that we become plagued by the things that worry us and make us afraid. And so I ask that in these quiet moments and as we open your word, that you, Lord God, would, would speak into the stillness, that our distractions would cease and we would focus on what you have for us today from your word. Speak now, Lord. Your people are listening. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, there was uh, a series of commercials uh, that were done by Southwest Airlines, uh, and it was... Uh, People would be in a situation, usually a public environment, and something would happen that would be awkward or uncomfortable. I remember one, uh, a woman is clearly at a friend's house, and she's in the bathroom, and she starts kind of going through the medicine cabinet, and she puts something back on the shelf, and like the whole medicine cabinet just collapses and falls and makes this big, loud racket, and then the Southwest Airlines commercial tagline comes on, do you want to get away? There's another one, and I had never seen this one before until the, the blessing that is YouTube entered my life. And uh, I, I, it was a, an army general comes into like the Pentagon, and there's this big crisis going on. They're like, sir, we need your password so we can, we can respond. And, and he's like, I, I really don't want it. They're like, no, we need it right now, and it's going to be public. And he's like, it is I hate my job one. And then it's like, you want to get away. You want to get away. It's pretty funny. And, and I think the reason why it's funny is because there is this sense within us, this desire to escape, to, to run away, to, to, to get away from things that are difficult, that are challenging, that are scary, that are hard. We want to get away and, and we want to escape. But on the other hand, there's this great deal of tension that we feel because we are burdened with great responsibilities. I want to get away, but I don't want to abandon my family. I want to get away, but I still want to have a job. I want to get away but I still want to take care of my friends and, and people in my life. There's this great deal of tension in my life. I, yes, Southwest Airlines, I do want to get away, but I can't. I don't know how you feel, but that's how I feel. I, I want to get away. There are times I want to escape, but I can't. Well, going through this series on the spiritual disciplines, and last week we looked at submission, and I think submission is so important to start with. Because you will not do any discipline, spiritual or otherwise, unless you submit to it. Unless you say, I'm going to put my life under this discipline. Whether it's exercising, whether it's learning a language, whether it's learning a musical instrument, you're not going to do anything unless you have a heart of submission to it. But solitude, I think, is the next most important discipline. And here's why. Most of the disciplines are practiced in solitude. Not all of them, but most of them. Solitude becomes like the schoolhouse where the disciplines are taught. And if you don't have time to get away, you're not going to really learn and engage in the disciplines. So today I want us to talk about 
how it is we can get away, how we can pull away into solitude, into silence, into stillness. And a lot of the spiritual discipline writers kind of put those two together, silence and solitude, how we can withdraw into that while at the same time not totally abandoning our responsibilities and it actually being something that fuels those responsibilities so that we can execute them well. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 35, but we're also going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. So kind of keep your finger in both places. We're going to be bouncing back and forth. Solitude. What is solitude? What is the biblical doctrine of solitude? It's not just walking away from uh, uh, everybody else. It's not just being away from people. I'm sorry, introverts. It is more than that. There's a two-step process, right? We live in Texas, so we like two steps, so here we go. The first step is negative, and it's obvious. It is withdrawing from people. The first thing you need to do is you do need to get away from distraction, away from people. But the second thing you need to do is draw close to Jesus. Christian solitude is being alone, yes, but it is being alone with Jesus. It is being alone with God. And it's incredibly simple. That's it. It's being alone with God. Have a great day. Why is it so hard to do? It's because there are numerous barriers to solitude. The barriers to solitude are numerous. They're numerous. Numerous. And the first one of these, I think, is fear. We're afraid. So the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is is characterized by a lot of words like immediately or healing, teaching, casting out demons. Mark is kind of the action gospel of, of, if Michael Bay wrote a gospel, it would be the gospel of Mark. It's just explosions and demons casting out, all this cool stuff going on, and there's not a lot of words. It's just doom, boom, 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 boom. And so, so, In it, we're seeing Jesus at this fast pace at the beginning of his ministry. He comes out of the wilderness, and and he's doing all these things. And then in verse 35, he actually winds up going back into the wilderness. Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, notice I said he's going back out into the wilderness. What's he going back out? When was the first time he went out? Well, the first time he went out into the wilderness, he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then it says immediately after that, because there again, there's that word immediately, he is driven into the wilderness for 40 days where he doesn't eat and he's tempted by Satan. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is thinking this. I'm saying this is what I would be thinking if I had followed that path. I would be going afraid to go back out into the wilderness, back into a desolate place of solitude, If the last time I went and did that, I was beaten up, tested, and tried for 40 days by Satan. I'm going to be like, "Eh, the last time I tried this discipline of solitude, it was hard, painful, and uncomfortable. I'm afraid I'm not going back out there because that's where Satan is. That's not what Jesus does. Fear is a great barrier to us practicing the discipline of solitude because the truth of the matter is we don't know what we're going to get when silence comes and we're by ourselves. You don't know what you're going to get. For some of us, and sometimes, it may be that we actually hear the voice of God. We get to spend really rich, refreshing time with him and it's really nice. But then other times it's just accusation and temptation. 
you get down into solitude, the house is still, everything's quiet, and you're like, why did that lustful thought just pop in my head? I'm trying to spend time with Jesus. Or why, am, why is it that I just started thinking about how angry I am with these people over here? I'm trying to spend time with Jesus. These accusations come. You're reminded of all the ways you screwed up that day. You're reminded of all the people you've let down. You're reminded of all the responsibilities that you have and you can't figure out how you're going to meet all those responsibilities. Or maybe there's, there's things that you're worried about, things you're anxious about, your finances, your family. Maybe you've got a child who's kind of wayward right now or going through a difficult time and you have all this noise, you have all this busyness, you have all these things going on so that you don't have to listen to the anxieties in your life. And when you get silent, when you get still, they come back and they're like, yeah, we're still here. You hadn't drowned us out completely. And then other times, and I think this is the worst, is you spend time in solitude and in silence and you hear nothing. And there's nothing that we hate more than feeling like we wasted our time. I just sat in this chair for 20 minutes trying to talk to Jesus and this was a total waste of my time. Why would I do this again? We're afraid to be alone. We're afraid to be silent. We become addicted to noise. We become addicted to busyness because it chases away the things that scare us. But another barrier we see is fatigue. Go back to 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The first chapter of Mark, um, when Jesus starts his ministry, when he's healing, when he's casting out demons, one author said that it's very compressed. And what that means is it, it, it sounds like Jesus is doing all of these things frequently and over a short period of time. We don't know what the short period of time is. It could be a day. It could be a week. But regardless, Jesus is doing a lot of work at the very beginning, and he's tired, which is why when you read in verse 35 that he rises very early in the morning and goes out while it's still dark, man, it must have been, that bed must have felt really good. It must have been nice to just sleep for a little bit, but Jesus rises early and he goes out by himself. If that were me, I'd be falling asleep in my prayers. Coffee was not invented at this point. I also don't drink coffee. But Jesus is, is getting up. He's going out. Do you know that the average American sleeps 6.8 hours per night? Which sounds actually, it was higher than I thought it was. The recommendation for people 18 to 60 is seven hours, which means, myself included, we are collectively not getting enough sleep. We're not getting enough sleep. We actually brag about how little sleep we get, right? It's like, well, I only need five hours. Yeah, your eyes are telling me that you need more, but that's cool. Just make up, you're good. Yep, stayed up late last night watching the game. Well, my, my Netflix show that I'm binging right now, it ended on a cliffhanger, so I had to have one more episode and went to bed late. Or I stayed up late last night at the office working on things. Stayed up till one. The only thing, I, I, serious, the only thing we hold in contempt more than sleep is personal time with Jesus. Because if those two things come to head to head, we're like, ah, Jesus would want me to go to sleep. Ah, uh, man, I'm just going to, I'm not going to give it the, the, the focus and attention that God deserves, so I'm just going to go to bed. 
You don't say that about your job. You don't say that about your... Oh, we, we, we tend to be like... And again, sometimes I think Jesus does want us to go to bed. But not at the expense of spending time with him. We think we've bought the lie that the rest or, or, or the, the, the cure for fatigue is leisure. Leisure and rest are not the same things. Becoming one with your couch is not biblical rest. And what I mean by that is you just are on your couch so much that it's difficult to discern where you stop and where the couch begins. That's leisure. And leisure is not a bad thing. I love leisure. But it is not going to give me soulful biblical rest. That only comes by being alone with Jesus. But I use fatigue as a barrier. I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired. And one of the last barriers is kind of obvious. It's other people. Other people get in the way of us being alone with Jesus. Did you ever wander off as a kid? Maybe in a department store or in, uh, maybe you went outside and played with some friends and you were supposed to come home at a certain time and you didn't. And your, your mom or dad, again, all of us, I, I don't know if it's like pre-programmed, like when you have a kid, you just have this response. Where have you been? We've been looking all over for you. I'm pretty sure everybody does that. It's like this like core thing that all parents, where have you been? What have you been doing? We've been looking all over for you. Jesus gets scolded like this, not by his parents, but by his disciples. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Translation, where have you been? Peter's rather bold. Everybody's looking for you. Everybody's tracking you down. We've been hunting for you. Now, why are they hunting for him? Jesus was in Capernaum, and he was doing all these miracles. He's in a major city. He's doing all these miracles, and, and they're popular. They're, they're, they're gaining support, and the disciples are like, we need to capitalize on this opportunity. We need to keep going with this. Jesus, we've got to ride the wave here. Everybody in your life, both well-intentioned and not, has very distinct ideas about how you should be spending your time. Your boss thinks you should be working. And when you're not working, you should be thinking about work. And if you're not thinking about work, you darn well better be ready to answer an email at whatever time I send it. Because I want you thinking about work when I want you thinking about work. Our spouses, significant others, have very specific ideas about how we should be spending our time. If you are a parent, your children have very specific ideas about how you should be spending your time, and depending on what age your kids are, those ideas change. Right now, my child thinks I should be playing Paw Patrol and coloring with her all the time. On the flip side of that, kids, your parents have very specific ideas about how you should be spending your time. You should be doing homework. If you're not doing homework, you should be working on your college applications. And if you're not working on your college applications, you should be doing extracurricular activities so that your college application looks even better. Very specific ideas. Even the church. I'm literally talking to you right now about how you should spend your time. That is what this sermon is. On top of that, we're like, the doors are open. You should be here. Come here every time the doors are open. People have very specific ideas about how you should spend your time. And I think one of the reasons why we surrender solitude so quickly and so willingly is we don't want to let anybody down. 
We want to fulfill people's expectations for our life. For the most part, we're, we're people that want to help other people. We want to do what people expect us to do, right? I want to fulfill my obligations. I don't want to fail anybody. I don't want to let anybody down. And it's such a temptation to surrender solitude, to surrender time with Christ in order to be what everybody thinks I should be. Jesus runs into this temptation in Mark chapter 6. Turn over there with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus is trying to have a little retreat with his disciples there in a boat. And there's a whole bunch of people, 5,000 of them, because Jesus is about to feed the 5,000. That's the story coming up. They're following him around the lake. They want to find him. Why? I read one author this week that said that they believe that this group of 5,000, the reason why the gospel says that it's 5,000 men, we know women and children are there, but why they emphasize men is because those people are coming, It's it's a mob who wants Jesus to make them an army so that they can overthrow Rome. They're like, we've seen the things you can do, we're ready. We've got 5,000 men ready to take up arms. And Jesus doesn't fall into that temptation. What does he do? It says he teaches them, he has compassion on them, he feeds them spiritually, physically. So often when we're presented with the chance to withdraw into solitude and to be with Jesus and let him tell us who we are, let him speak into our lives, let him shape and mold us and guide us into the person that God wants us to be, We surrender that great gift so that everybody else can tell us who we're supposed to be, so that we can have the approval and affection of everybody else. Let me tell you this. If you are somebody who struggles, and when I say struggle, I mean you idolize, you live and die by people saying good things about you or bad things about you. If you're somebody who has to be told when you're doing a good job or when you're not doing a good job, and by the way, you would be in company with me. I mean, words of affirmation person, one of the best things you can do is the discipline of solitude. One of the best cures for the idolatry of other people's approval is solitude because if nobody can see you, nobody can approve of you. It's like going cold turkey. And the only person there to approve you and tell you that he loves you is the Lord. It's a great gift. It's a great gift. There's a lot of barriers to solitude. There's fear, there's fatigue, and there's failure. We're afraid we're going to let somebody down. And it all stems from idolatries that we have, things that we hold up higher than the Lord. So what do we do? What's the solution to this? Well, there's one. There's one singular solution. Let's stay in Mark 6. Stay in Mark 6 and look back again at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. This group, this army, succeeds in tracking Jesus down. This would not have been an easy task. Remember, Jesus is in a boat, so he's going straight across the water on the Sea of Galilee, and they're traveling over land. So Jesus' boat is not the only boat on the water, so they would have had to keep track of this boat. They're obviously traveling with women and children because we know there's a child that comes with his lunch because that's how Jesus feeds the 5,000. They're traveling over rocky, difficult terrain. They probably have to cross the Jordan River, and somehow they beat Jesus to the spot where he's going. 
And this would have been incredibly difficult. Why would these people have left their jobs, left their homes, gone out into the wilderness where things are dangerous? Why would they go out there? It's because they just spent either the last day or the last week watching this man in Capernaum heal diseases, cast out demons, and drive away all the things that scare and oppress them. Now, whether they were wanting to make him a military leader and they were wrong about that impression, or they were convinced he was the Messiah because of all of the great things that he could do. It didn't matter. They went to the wilderness because that's where Jesus was. They went into the place of solitude because that's where Jesus was. He's the one that could set them free. It was a scary time to be alive. They didn't have medicine like we have medicine. If somebody got sick, they died. But there's a guy out in the wilderness that can heal somebody. Let's take him. Demonic oppression, although still real today, was something that they felt more palpably. There's somebody who can give us freedom from this evil in our lives. Let's go to him. The things that they were afraid of, the things that wore them out, the things that they were, the the failure that they experienced in their life trying to keep religious commandments. There was a man out there that could set them free. And that same invitation is offered to you today by meeting with him in solitude. The barriers that stand in our way to solitude, fear, fatigue, failure, those aren't just barriers to solitude. Those are barriers to us becoming whole people, people that God wants us to be, to be the person that God created you to be. The things that stand in your way are fear, fatigue, failure. I don't want to be alone because when I'm alone, those are the things that plague me, fear, fatigue, failure. Jean-Paul Sartre said, if you're lonely when you're alone, you're in bad company. You know who the bad company is that accompanies us into solitude? Fear, fatigue, failure. That's who follows me into solitude. And I'm sure they follow you as well. I'm faced with failings that I've had in my past, people that I've let down, mistakes that I've made, sins that I've committed. I'm plagued by those things. I'm faced with the weariness and maybe the pointlessness of my life right now. The present just feels daunting and overwhelming. And I'm afraid of the uncertainty of the future. And those things plague us in our solitude. And so we hide from those things. We hide from those things in the noise. We hide from those things in the busyness, in the TV shows, in the sports. We hide from them. Because we don't want to feel it. And Jesus calls this, the Bible calls this, walking by sight and not by faith. Because I am trying to run away from the experiences, the bad experiences. I don't want to feel those things. So I hide. I hide away from them. I'm not going to be by myself. Instead of trusting that the Lord will meet me in solitude. Instead of having faith that he's going to do those things for me. Back in Mark 1, you can, you can flip back there. Like I said, you're going to need to keep your finger there. In Mark 1.38, after the disciples come to him and say, you need to come back to Capernaum and do these things. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. What did Jesus come to preach? What was the good news? It tells us in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, freedom from those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That vengeance is on people who are hurting and punishing 
and attacking God's people to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He has come to set us free from the things that oppress us, the things that chase us down. And how did he do this? He did it by himself becoming a prisoner. He did it by taking on flesh. By the way, the, the Son of God, divine, puts on flesh, which means that because Jesus is fully human and fully God, because he's fully human, Jesus got tired. He wore down. He experienced fatigue. He experienced difficult moments where he was afraid. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes to the cross where he's made out to be a failure. He's mocked and ridiculed for it. All the things that you are afraid of, Jesus faces on the cross. All the things that plague us in solitude, Jesus faces on the cross. And what's more than that, in his resurrection that happens three days later, he has a victory over death, which means he has victory over those things that we're afraid of. Why? Why do I know that? How does his victory over death tell me that he has victory over my fears, my failures, and my fatigue? Because the greatest fear that we have when it relates to solitude is dying alone. Every single person in this room is afraid to be somewhere by themselves and to pass out of this life, to die alone, to be placed in a box alone, to have a funeral where nobody comes to, to be dropped into the cold ground alone, and to spend eternity in the cold ground alone where you are forgotten. That is why solitude is scary, because it feels like death. But Jesus, through the cross and through the resurrection, transformed solitude. Solitude's no longer a place of fear because Jesus went to the grave by himself. He redeems solitude, and now solitude is a temple of worship. Solitude is a place of faith where I can go and I say, death, you have no hold on me anymore. I can be by myself because when I'm by myself, I'm not by myself. I am with the Lord. So to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To be scared means I run to the Lord. To be worn out means I run to the Lord. To fail means I go to the Lord. Death is redeemed and so solitude is redeemed and rescued. And now it becomes a place of strength for the believer, not a place of weakness, not a place of vulnerability. Throughout human history, being alone meant you were vulnerable to attack. Now, in Christ, being alone means you are strong. You gain strength. That doesn't mean we should reject community, not at all. But it does mean there is strength that we bring to community by spending time alone with Christ. Solitude is redeemed. This is why he tells us, this is why David says, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. This is why he tells us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's why he tells us this. He wants to give us rest. And you might sit there and think it's impossible. You might sit there and think it's absolutely impossible. Jesus wants nothing to do with me. Either because you think Jesus doesn't want anything to do with you because your past is so, you think is so heinous that God doesn't want anything to do with you. Or you think it's ridiculous 
that there's a peasant who lived 2,000 years ago who can be the cure for your fears, your failings, and your fatigue. Or maybe you just think it's impossible because you don't have time to get by yourself. I want you to look at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Again, we're bouncing around a bit. 6, verse 34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Jesus wants to draw you close. He wants to teach you many things. He wants to be your shepherd. And what's really cool is after this, he teaches for so long that people start getting hungry and the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, you gotta send these people away. These people are hungry. And he's like, you give them something to eat. His disciples are like, what? There's a little boy there with a lunch, five loaves, two fish. And Jesus does the impossible. He takes that and feeds 5,000 people with it. And then right after this, he goes and does the impossible again. He walks on water. And then after this, he feeds 4,000 people in a completely separate instance of doing the impossible. And then the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John and the gospel of Matthew end with him being crucified, killed, and coming back to life from the dead in the resurrection, doing the impossible. Give Jesus your impossible. Give him the things that you don't. If you are not a believer and you think it is impossible that I should come to faith, give him that impossible. Say, I don't even know if you're real here. Try it. What do you have to lose? You have everything to gain. There are things that are holding us back from giving him worship, giving him our affection. Give him that impossible thing. Because he's a God of the impossible. And if he can redeem death, if if he can rescue us from death, if he can redeem solitude, Surely, he can take whatever impossible things we face. Why not give him your impossible? If you're not somebody who ever put your faith and trust in Christ, give him your fears. Give him your failings. Give him what you're tired of. Just say, I can't do this anymore. That's called putting your faith in Christ, turning away from those things, locking eyes instead of on the things that you're worried about and the things that you're afraid of and giving him those things in faith and saying, Lord, I trust you with them. And because of your death, your burial, and your resurrection, I believe that you can have victory over these things. That's knowing Christ. That's coming to faith. I'm a firm believer that when you take on a discipline, you should get some kind of benefit out of it, right? Like, I'm not just going to make my life harder for no good purpose. And while I don't think we should be mercenary Christians who are always out looking for the benefit of ourselves, the benefits to solitude are immeasurable. We have immeasurable benefits. So whenever you go to the gym, and let's say you've noticed uh, that there's a certain part of you, and how do I put this politely, that has become soft. And you would like to make that part of your body less soft. You go to the gym and you start doing certain workouts. And you notice that this soft part of you is continuing to be soft. There may be some other parts that are like, okay, I'm starting to feel good. And then you hurt yourself. What you've done is you've worked out wrongly and you've worked out whatever parts of your body, you've worked out the wrong ones for whatever soft part you're working on. All that to be said, you should know whether you're doing the discipline of solitude correctly. There should be things that tell us. And my guess is that they should be opposites of fear, fatigue, and failure. Solitude is restorative. So the first thing that I think you gain by being in solitude, being alone with Jesus, is focus. You gain focus. Go back to verse 38 of Mark chapter 1. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. They're told. He says, 
uh, Simon says, no, 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 we need to go back to Capernaum. He's like, no, 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 this isn't why I came. I came to proclaim the good news to everybody. It's been proclaimed in Capernaum. Let's go on. He's focused. He's been by himself. He has gained focus. When you spend time alone with the Lord, drawing energy and strength from him, you gain focus. Because you realize those things that you're afraid of, those things that distract you in fear, are things that God can use to shape you and mold you and make you more in the image of his son, to make you that whole person that you desperately want to be. So you gain focus. You say, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, that's painful. But God's going to use that. I don't know how, but God's going to use it. Those good things in my life, God can use those things too. So you gain focus. And it gives purpose and meaning to your life. And you find that in solitude. But you also gain fuel. Go back to Mark 6. Again, I told you we were going to bounce back around. Verse 30. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They had been on a difficult mission. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. The disciples were worn out. They're tired. And Jesus knows this. And he says, come on, guys. Let's go off by ourselves. Now, this retreat kind of gets hijacked a bit by a small mob. But this is an opportunity for them to refuel. And solitude is a place for you to get refueled, for Jesus to impart his rest to us. Remember, biblical solitude is time alone with Jesus. There is a difference between by yourself and by yourself with Jesus. I see this in my own life. Sometimes uh, we have Fridays off here, and sometimes I'll have my daughters home with me on Fridays, but sometimes when I need rest, I will, I will let Kim take them to daycare, and I'll kind of have some time to myself, either a half day or a whole day. And if I take a part of that day, not even the whole day, but if I just take a part, 30 minutes, an hour, and I give it to the Lord and I spend time with him, when Kim calls me and wants me to start putting on something for dinner, or when, when it's time to go pick up my daughters, or when my, my children come home, my family comes home, I'm excited, I'm ready to engage with them, I'm ready to pour into them, I'm, I'm ready. But if I haven't done that part, that spending that time with the Lord, when my family comes home or when I get a phone call, I'm like, ugh, my day is over. I love my family, but it's just like, oh man, I've gotta go back to my responsibilities. I've gotta go back to being a dad. I've gotta go back to being a husband. I've gotta go back to these things that sometimes are difficult. And I don't know if you experience that too, but if I've already given up a part of my day to the Lord, it is easier to give up more of it to others as well. It refuels you. It gives you energy and strength. Because let's be honest, loving people, whether they're in your family or not, maybe particularly if they're not, it's hard to love people. It's draining. You need to be refueled, and you find that in solitude with the Lord. And the last thing you gain is forgiveness. You gain forgiveness. Turn with me to John chapter 21. You gain forgiveness. So this is a, a scene, and I'm not going to read it. Uh, it, it it's, it's, uh, it's in the text there. Um, Jesus has been resurrected. It's the end of the gospel. Peter has denied Jesus. He's denied him three times in the middle of the trial. So Peter's kind of on the outs. And so he goes back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and he goes ashore because Jesus is there cooking, and, and they wind up going off by themselves. And we know they're off by themselves because it says that Peter turned and saw the disciple that Jesus loved, who was John, following them. So we think Peter and, and Jesus are kind of off by themselves. And there's this interaction. Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And this happens three times. Most people think that this happened in a modern day place called Tabga. Tabga. 
Tabga is the location of a church called the Church of the Multiplication, which, man, we just need better church names, right? Church of the Multiplication, that's awesome. Move for a name change, Church of the Multiplication. The reason why they call it the Church of the Multiplication is because they also believe that is the same place where Jesus fed the 5,000. So Jesus brings Peter aside in the solitude. Remember, there was an abortive attempt at a a retreat in this place before because of the 5,000. So he actually brings him aside later, maybe years later, into solitude and reminds him, I forgive you. We're okay. I know you denied me. Do you love me? You affirm that? Great. Feed my sheep. Which, what a poignant command, feed my sheep, to be said in the same place where Jesus fed 5,000. Jesus wants to bring you into solitude, not so he can forgive you, that forgiveness is won for us in grace, by grace through faith. But it's so you can experience the great blessing that is forgiveness. You can know that you're forgiven. You can draw close to him and have that experience of forgiveness. Jesus wants you to draw close to him, to, to pull you aside by yourself so he can speak truth into your life, so he can give you fuel, so he can give you forgiveness, so he can give you focus. Those are the things that are blessings for us that can be found in solitude. So let me ask you again, do you want to get away? And do you want to get away with Jesus? Not only do I think you want to, I don't see how you can't. We need to get away with Jesus. If you want to know, and one of the flaws in only having a limited time to talk about this, is sometimes the practical part gets lost in it. How do, what, do we, what do we do in the midst of this. You have a guide, you have a devotional guide that's been made, a Lenten guide. I'll show it to you when, when, when I come back up here. There's some great practical things that you can do to cultivate that time of solitude. The rest of our uh, talks about the spiritual disciplines are going to be things that you do in solitude. So stay with us, keep coming back for these, these, these messages because I think it's going to be really formative for your Easter season and really for your life. But if you are not practicing solitude, you cannot practice the disciplines. It's hard. It's almost impossible. I know that there are things that stand in your way. There's fear, there's fatigue, there's failure. But we know that Jesus has conquered those things because he conquered the grave and he offers us this gift to come alone with him. He's going to give you focus, he's going to give you fuel, and he's going to grant you your forgiveness that you so desperately need. We need it. So let's draw close to him. Pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for solitude. It is scary, and it's a scary place because being alone is scary. We feel vulnerable. And so, God, I pray for the people in this room that you would grant them the gift of solitude. For those maybe that spend a lot of time alone, and and maybe it's not by choice, I pray that you would redeem their loneliness, that you would give them strength and encouragement. I pray you bring community into their life to make their times of solitude rich. And I pray, Lord God, for those of us who just can't seem to find time, I pray that you would carve out time and give us courage to pursue that with you. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.